0: Welcome to the second edition of the Flag Squad pod on your ACN feed. You didn't chase us out of town after the first one, so we're back for more. I'm Terry Westgate and I am joined by my flag-bearing comrade Nick Hayhoe. Hi everyone. And recently seen on Look East, Maddie McKenzie.
1: Yeah, thanks for that Terry, hi team. <laughs>
0: so I hope we're all uh, fit and raring to go for the uh, second outing of the Flag
1: Squad pod. How are you both feeling today? I really wish people could see what goes on behind the scenes here. Everyone else is happy in the the, the nicely lit rooms. I'm currently recording in my understead cupboard, lit only by my laptop screen. So, you know, we're professional podcasters now, I think.
2: You know when you have an election campaign and your local MP will go on about how well they're going to improve local broadband in rural areas? Well, this is a good example of how they never, ever fulfil that promise. Yep. <laughs> we, we found out that broadband in... Both Norfolk and Suffolk is generally very, very shit.
1: I mean, I only live five miles away from the centre of Norwich, and the only way to get good Wi-Fi is to sit two metres away from my router in an underground cupboard.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'm actually central knowledge, and I've got cable, which is supposed to be the most reliable Wi-Fi, and even mine still falls out all the time. So, yeah. hey. But if we stick with football, so if (laughs) we pick up from um, what we were discussing on the first pod about first... Something that we didn't cover, which I think might be interesting, is um, the first player that you really loved. So we talked about how old we were when we fell in love with football and when we first went to games. But has there ever been, was there a player in particular that really kind of stole your heart, to to borrow a cliche, when you first got into football?
1: Well, not to show my age or anything, but my first player was Wes Houlihan. And because I was getting into football uh, around the season that we were in the Premier League 2015 to 2016, Wes was the only player when I was younger and growing up in school that if someone had said, name a Norwich player, it would be Wes Hoolahan. He was just the one that everybody knew, you know, the tiny Irish magician. And I remember insisting on watching every single game the Republic of Ireland played in the Euros and obviously trying to watch as many matches there to see Wes and Robbie Brady playing together. And it it blew my tiny 16 year old mind when Wes and Robbie Brady were on the same team playing against Martin Olsen. It was three Norwich players on the international stage. That was one of the best moments of my life up to then. And my brother bought me a Wes Houlihan mask for Christmas that year because he knew I was such a fan of him <laughs> and I've currently got this soulless, terrifying mask up hidden in my room somewhere. That was not a vintage Christmas present. So thanks, Jack.
2: So the, the I, I love um, Wes. Um, he's one of my favorite ever Norwich players. I've got an interesting story about Houlihan, actually, in that when I was in uh, Dublin on a uh, weekend away, we were um, on the way out of a nightclub grabbing a taxi and you know it's just two o'clock in the morning sort of thing and um, we were kind of traveling on the way back to our hotel. Uh, cab drivers in Ireland are always obviously very friendly and um, they were asking where we were from and that sort of thing and we all sort of said oh we're from Suffolk and the, the cab driver said oh so you're all Ipswich town fans. And I said well actually I'm, an, I'm a Norwich fan. And I was kind of expecting that conversation that you kind of have with people from outside of England who have kind of heard of Norwich because they're occasionally in the Premier League. We don't really know much about them, but the cab driver actually went, "Oh yeah, we know all about Norwich because Wes Houlihan plays for them." And I was like, "Oh yeah," and then we had you know a great fifteen-minute conversation about how great Wes Houlihan was. It was quite, I always find that quite quite interesting because obviously the, they love Wes over there even more than the rest of the island players because he was actually he actually started playing his football in Ireland which is really unusual for for most of the Irish international side so yeah that's just my interesting uh Wes Houlihan story but my
0: I was just going to say I think another thing with um uh, Wes Houlihan is that he wasn't picked often for the national team and a lot of Irish fans thought he should have been like in the starting lineup like every every international match and he was often being left out um and I think that became a bit of a like a contentious issue amongst Irish fans so they were often calling for Wes Houlihan has been playing when he was left out. and I think that, again, raised his status amongst Irish fans. And
1: they were as passionate about him as we were. It was our one connecting link with um, Republic of Ireland fans. Everybody loved Wes Houlihan among Norwich and Irish fans. It was brilliant.
2: Yeah, and, and um, it's funny how, actually, uh, when you support a club who's kind of outside the top six, you tend to like international teams more because of the players that play for them rather than, because of your kind of national links to them, obviously during that Euros that you were talking about, there, Mally, we were—you were saying that uh, you were interested in the Ireland results, and I think I celebrated Hulahan's goal against Ireland more than I celebrated any of the England goals uh, <laughs> during that tournament. Um,
1: well, there weren't as, a lot of good England goals to celebrate, to be fair.
2: Well, yes, exactly, and I've always had a liking of various—I've always had a liking for Scotland teams because of the often Norwich connections to to the Sky side right up until sort of recently and yeah we've had that with Wales as well of course with Ewan Roberts and and others so um yeah it's funny how that kind of kind of happens going back to the uh the first Norwich player that I loved um so last podcast I mentioned that the first sort of amazing season I remember was when we got promoted in And when we think of 0304, there is only one player that everybody thinks about, which is Grand Lord, Darren Huckabee. And um, the funny thing about Huck's is that um, he's one of those players that very rarely we get in Northern City, where he's clearly several levels above yeah. where we are at as a club in terms of quality or in terms of as a team in terms of quality. A little bit like Emi Buendia now, actually, where I think Emi Buendia is probably, you're probably talking, should be at one of the top sort of 20 clubs in Europe sort of level, but he's actually playing for Norwich. And I think the same was the case of Huckabee because every time he got the ball, it would just litch quite literally, and this is an overused cliche, but it quite literally put everybody on the edge of the seat because you knew that something was going to happen. And there are so many clips of him putting as it was at the time, Division 1 defenders, on their backside and completely confounding them. It was just an extraordinary thing to see a Norwich player do that. Even when it comes to when looking at the footage of the great Norwich team of the early 90s, I think as a team they were an incredible team. And they probably why one on two individual players who came close to matching Huckabee. But I think because Huckabee was so far and away in terms of quality above the rest of that side. And that's not to say that the rest of the side wasn't good because they were incredible, um, sort of amazing players in that side. But because Huckabee was several levels above, it really made him stand out. And his, then, his, then, his legend then continued because he fell in love with the club despite having no connection to Norwich and also obviously had lots of previous clubs as well. Man City, Newcastle, Leeds. He's obviously a Nottingham Ooh. native as well. So... Um, has a connection to Forest, and it's it's extraordinary actually that when you're a club like Norwich, one of your club, one of the best ever players to then be what is basically a fully fledged Norwich supporter, as well as his family, because I know his son follows Norwich home and away as well. And it's just, that just continued the legend, I think, and that makes what that makes a player even better in my eyes, even though it you know has nothing to do with the football he played. It just improves that player stature. So. Yeah, Huckabee will always probably be my favourite ever Norwich player.
1: And that's not just because he followed you on Twitter the other day.
2: Yeah, and he followed me on Twitter the other day, which is good.
1: I just thought everyone should know. It's, it's Nick's proudest
0: achievement. I would say that I am very fastly approaching my 46th birthday, and I am still in complete awe of footballers when I meet them. Um, I mean, I've never, <laughs> actually <word>? been in... <laughs> I've never actually met Zimbo and I don't actually know if I could physically cope with that situation. <laughs> I think I would be a mess. I've sat in the same uh, studio at Radio Norfolk with Chris Sutton. Um, and I could barely form a sentence to begin with, because I was just sitting there thinking, I'm sitting next to Chris Sutton. I'm sitting next to Chris Sutton. Like completely, like completely. And he was just so casual and friendly and lovely. And I was just like, but Chris Sutton. So yeah, Chris, um, I don't actually
2: think. Chris Sutton was obviously such an amazing player as well. He Something that's always irked me is how underrated Chris Sutton has been just in general for the last 30 years or so. I think he was—he prob- should have played far more times for England. Um, and, you know, he, his contribution to that Blackburn Premier League side was actually far more than what people give him credit for. Um, and it's Yeah, it's always a little bit infuriating how when people talk about the best footballers in the 90s, Chris Sutton barely pops up in conversation. It's always bugged me.
0: When I did, I recently was asked to put together a, 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 my top 11 all-time Norwich players that, I, that I'd seen play. And Chris Sutton was in that top 11 because even though he obviously only had him for a little while before he got sold to Blackburn, he was an amazing player for us. And he just made scoring goals look so easy, quite similar in a way to Pookie, in that he would just seem to be able to get to the ball when you didn't think he could. And he seemed to be able to beat the defender and beat the keeper. He just had this natural instinct. Um, Despite all that raving about Chris Sutton, he probably wasn't the first player that I fell in love with at Norwich, even though I was a big fan. The first player, and to this day, the only player's name I've ever had on the back of a shirt was actually John Polston. So <laughs> That's out of nowhere. My thing, my thing with about defenders hasn't started with Zimbo. It's been going on a long time. Um, I was also a very big fan of Craig Fleming in his period at the club as well. I don't know what it is about defenders that I really appreciate. I think, um, obviously, you know, you want all the, the glory of the the attacking players. But there is something about a really good defender that I appreciate. And I think um, there are similarities, again, between Polston and Zimbo in that they are both players who would literally put their head in where it hurt. Um, John Polston often had black eyes and broken noses because he'd be heading the ball at, at a player's feet. Um, I like player, you know, that well-timed tackle that you think... There's no way he's going to get the ball. And yet somehow he manages to get the ball and play the ball. And, I, and I, I can't really explain it other than that. Then I just somehow had an affinity with him and he was my favourite player. And like I said, he's the only one. I've still got the old crest shirt with Polston on the back. Um, <laughs> to be honest, everything else has come off in a wash because they weren't very well made those old shirts. So the sponsorship on the front has come off and most of the number on the back, but somehow the Polston, the word Polston, is still there on that shirt. Polston
1: legend lives on. Always sure hand does. wash
2: your old, always hand wash your old shirts, people. So, yes,
1: definitely. Top, they tip don't, they don't the, last
2: top tip from the A.C.N. flag squad pod there. Always hand wash your old shirts. <laughs>
0: what did the you mine was for? it was live. It was living in a box for ages with um, uh, an Inter Milan scarf that I swapped with an Inter Milan fan at the San Siro. And then when they had, um, a couple of years ago, and they had the charity match with the Inter Legends came over, and I dug it out, and I thought, I want to wear this shirt and this scarf to the game. But obviously, it was stank, because it was all foisty and musty and been sitting in a box. I thought, how I need to give it a wash.
1: All of mine are in my wardrobe. Every single Norwich shirt I own is in my wardrobe. Which really speaks to how limited my fashion sense is, I guess. Yeah, but you know, this is a
0: shirt that I bought 27, eight years ago. So I've had a lot of um, shirts and other stuff in the meantime. And and this was before I, this is when I I still had that shirt when I was living at home. So it's before I moved out. So it just ended up in a box in a cupboard. And I actually thought I'd lost it for years. And then I was having a bit of a clear out a few years ago and I found it. Um, but yeah, so I, I never throw away shirts. I've got some. I've got some really horrible old shirts. I've got shirts which have got like fag butt burns in them because it's from the days when you used to still smoke in pubs and stuff Ooh, and classy. smoke at football. And of course, these hot, sort of cheap sort of polyester shirts. As soon as you get a cigarette anywhere near them, just basically burn straight through.
2: <laughs> I can I can just about remember the days of smoking at the football, which is the one of the kind of because obviously smell is one of those things that triggers memories more than any other sense. Right. Um So every time I actually smell cigarette smoke is usually will take me back to the early days of going to the, when I was younger and went to the football. It absolutely stank when, <laughs> when, when it was horrible. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I also remember pubs being really, really smelly as well. It just and I've, I've worked in pubs since and uh, I can't dread, I dread to think what it would have been like if I, worked in pubs, and smoking was still allowed and them, how bad my lungs would be.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, I, I was never a smoker, but I must have, I, through passive smoking alone, God knows how much nicotine I had. <laughs> From After a night out, you'd wake up the next morning, and your hair would stink of cigarettes, and your handbag would stink, and, like, your shoes, every, literally everything would stink of cigarettes in the morning. It was vile if you're not a smoker.
1: Coming back to the idea of defenders, some breaking news from Norwich City Football Club. Jamal Lewis is doing a degree in stocks. He's spending his time at the moment doing a degree all about economics and the stock market in order to prepare him for life outside of football. That's just that's not the sort of thing you'd expect. You know what is he twenty one, twenty two? Your twenty three year old left back to come out with? I just think that's brilliant.
2: There's quite a lot of footballers I think who do business degrees. Um, there's somebody I was reading about a couple of weeks ago who did a business degree, and I can't remember who that was. It was a, a, a kind of like a second tier level player, um, and they were doing very well for themselves actually, having invested in quite a lot of things. I think quite a lot of footballers like doing that as a fallback when it comes, you know, if their career ended by sudden injury or something. I think. I think after so many years of of footballers falling into financial ruin, if their careers have been cut short, you know, um, you see, hear so many stories about footballers in particular falling into gambling addiction, um, for example, you know, or, or investing in bad investments and losing all their money. I think the modern footballers kind of realise that, yeah, we need to kind of actually make sure that we have some sort of backup. Good on so good on Jamal there. Um, I know he's a smart lad, so I'm sure he's gonna, I'm sure he'll get on well with that.
1: I just love all of our team, you know, putting to bed the stereotypes of the the stupid footballer and the you know, the good for nothing outside of sports footballer. I think we've got a really smart, a really level headed, and a really thoughtful team, which is probably why they've endeared themselves to so many people because they just, you know, they they come across as deep thinkers, as people you'd like to have a conversation with. I, I don't think you've got a bad egg in our squad, which is obviously, you know, Stuart Weber's philosophy.
2: Yeah, I I think um, Grant Hanley really sums that up for me because he Mm. was when he was talking about ringing around the older season ticket holders um, to check if they were okay. um, In a couple of weeks after the COVID crisis occurred, um, he was actually saying that after he'd done that, he was on his own time ringing back people he thought that needed to be called back, and you know he wasn't being prompted to do that. It's just doing that because he thought it was the right thing to do, Um, and it's it's quite a small thing, but I actually think that's all too rare not just in football but it's just in modern society for people to do that so when you have a whole team or a whole squad of players with that kind of personality it's amazing the sort of things that you can then go on and achieve without having those massive egos and like you say that was what Stuart webber's philosophy was the old has been the whole time Mm -hmm. i think that's why we've got so far as what we have now and we've got a
1: good reputation of having good eggs at Norwich as well. You just have to look at the Murphy twins, you know, up and down and market, on that prescription. I think Elliot Bennett's been doing a lot in the community at the moment. It's just, it's so nice to see them. And, not, and I think it was Zimbo himself who said what people want at the moment, they don't necessarily want football, but it could cheer people up to see a footballer. And he knew that he had that responsibility to go in the community and just put a smile on people's faces. And as you say, you know, obviously the club want them to do some community work, you know, keep their faces out there, keep keep them fresh in people's minds but it's just so brilliant that all of them seem to have taken it upon themselves to go above and beyond yeah what a nice little team we have
0: yeah I don't think anybody's doing it because they feel they have to I think they're all doing it you know Stuart Webber and everybody I think they're doing it because they want to I think they appreciate that you know particularly last season Norwich overachieved and one of the reasons that Norwich overachieved is because of that special relationship between the club and the fans and, you know, we were there for them all of last season. And they they see this as a way of repaying that. And it's and I honestly think it is a genuine thing. I don't think they're doing it as some PR stunt. I think they genuinely want to help. And I think actually a lot of footballers are like that. I think footballers do get a bad press. Yep. But you look at what um, like Bradley Johnson and Dexter Blackstock have been doing and getting PPP out to care homes. Completely off their own back, just because they wanted to help the community, and there are so many good stories like that. But they just obviously never get the same column inches of the other stuff.
2: Dexter Blackspot was actually the footballer I was trying to think of who he did the who was gone into business and was doing well for himself. So thanks for reminding me on that. Yeah, it was Dexter <laughs> Blackspot, and he he it was an interview in the Guardian. Um, yes, yeah, uh, that's going to surprise people that I read the Guardian. It was he, he had an interview in the Guardian. He was so well spoken, and he said, you know, he was saying all of these things that were just um, just so true and so right about, you know, having to do stuff in the community. And, you know, it's not just a case of just throwing their money at stuff. They actually have to physically go through the process of doing things as well. So yeah. Uh, well done footballers, or the ones that have done that sort of thing anyway. <laughs>
1: He's great for young kids as well. Yeah. I remember when we were younger, or when, when I was younger even, you know, it was players like Wayne Rooney were about and they were always telling us at school, don't base your heroes around footballers. Look at them, they're disgusting, they spit on the pitch, they do this, they do that. And obviously, you know, I'm nine years old and I hate football, so I'm thinking, yeah, you're right, all footballers are horrible. And nowadays, you've got these footballers who know that kids are watching their every step. And Marcus Rashford, you know, playing for one of the biggest clubs in the world, you know, he's had an absolute fantastic career trajectory and he's off there raising millions of pounds and giving money to kids. And that's just such a brilliant thing for kids to see. So I think it's great that the suggestion that footballers can't make good role models has gone out the window because people who spend that much time in the public eye, they've really taken an idea about their own image and how kids are going to respond to that.
0: I think another thing also is that a lot of footballers who are successful actually come from quite humble beginnings. You know, yeah. they're not from a rich family. They've not inherited their wealth. They've not got, you know, they're not successful because they've gone to a good school, and a good university. They're successful because they're good at football. But they could easily just come from a, you know, a council estate or a housing block. So they come from quite humble beginnings. So that doesn't necessarily mean that when they've got wealth, they think, oh, I'm all right, Jack. Actually, they want to give. the people from the community from what they've come from so actually they can be a lot more grounded than other people in their position
1: that was what made it so bloody hypocritical when you had all those people criticizing them for i don't know not taking a pay cut or stuff like that and you're thinking look at you sat up there where's your pay cut you've come from wealth you've never known a life without wealth these people who have known what it's like to not be the wealthiest in society know know exactly what they need to do in this crisis and i just remember when every all the players started tweeting hashtag players together and just that absolute fuck you moment to Matt Hancock. What a oh, brilliant. I mean, I could go up on that on about that forever, but, you know, let's try and change the topic a bit because otherwise I think this to <laughs> turn into a rant.
0: <laughs> yeah, we're going to try and keep it rant-free uh, this <laughs> pod, but um, we won't always be successful, but... Which well, is miraculous, thinking... given the
1: three of us. I know,
0: yeah, if you see us on Twitter, you know we're very prone, prone to rant. <laughs> uh, Talking about, well, obviously, um, Elliot Bennett and Bradley Johnson, who I think I've actually grown to love them more since they've left the club because of contact through social media and stuff but obviously they're they are they are together now at Blackburn Rovers and that does actually mean that I actually quite like Blackburn Rovers to do well because they've got two of our ex-players who are such nice guys that you want to see them do well and as a result you want Blackburn to do well I mean do you have clubs like that that you have a you don't have a direct association with but actually you like them to do
1: well It just comes about randomly, I think. I mean, obviously, you know, as a good socialist, not to alienate our fan base, I have a a predilection for St. Pauli over in Germany. But I'd say in England, I I follow the results of Manchester United, if only to see, you know, whether I can mock my dad at the weekend or not. But I wouldn't really say I care whether they do well. And I, I quite enjoyed to see them lose. But the one team I would like to win all of their games in the season, apart from the two times they play us, is Leicester. And I'm not I'm not really sure why. None of my family are from Leicester. I've never been to Leicester. I think it was because growing up, the only non-Norwich footballer I really knew was Gary Lineker, because he was just he was everywhere. And so I knew of Gary Lineker and I thought, oh, he seems like a really decent guy. So when you're like eight or nine and you know People in school are saying, "I'll oh, do a profile on an athlete. You need to go away and research an athlete." He was—I was so unathletic that he was the only athlete I knew. So just since then, and they play in blue, which is my favorite color. You know, sorry guys, I know that's a, a bit of a fallacy as a Norwich uh... fan, <laughs> a bit of a shit reason to like. Blue <laughs> as well, yeah, I just I like Leicester, and they've got some nice players. You know, they're just—I think they're a good fan base as well, a good solid club. I—I I, I don't know why.
2: So I um. I have a quite um, conflicting mind when it comes to like, liking other teams because I generally don't like any other English side or any other football league English side because there are non-league teams that I, I watch um, who aren't Norwich. That's pretty much run always the other through, except when it comes to Nottingham Forest. And the only reason I like Nottingham Forest is because Forest is a cracking away day. I also really like the city of Nottingham as well. I've been there a number of times and it's, it's a really great place for a night hours, great place for a weekend away. Um, I love the film Saturday night, Sunday morning, which is set in Nottingham. And I also, I also think that Nottingham Forest are kind of a club that's kind of quite similar to Norwich in the way that they've kind of gone through their history. Okay. They've had more success in Europe than what we have. Obviously they won the Champions League twice, which is an incredible achievement, which I don't think is talked about enough actually People say, oh, you always bang on about the European Cup wins. And it's like, well, yeah, because they won the European Cup twice in an era where it's really difficult to win the European Cup twice. So, yeah, I, in terms of uh, English size, probably my only other real liking is is Nottingham Forest. I like a couple of other clubs lower down the leagues, um, but only sort of fleetingly, I guess, when it comes to when they do something kind of crazy or, or a good cup run. Um, I'll still look out for their results as, as that goes on.
0: Like a glory um, hunter,
2: a little bit, yeah. But in, <laughs> a, a, a glory hunter, a bit in the reverse, I suppose. And also, when it comes to clubs abroad, though, obviously, I think everybody kind of picks their favourite club in a particular country. Uh, and so that's something that I've always done. Um, in Spain, I like Valencia because I've been to Valencia a few times. Um, in Germany, it's Hella Lin at St Pauli as well. Um, and in France, like Nantes, I'm wearing a Nantes shirt right now. Um, and they play, obviously, in green and yellow. And then there's the Canaries <laughs> in Italy. I like Roma. So, you know, I always kind of like picking a, little, like, a side that, you know, broad that um, I like in that particular country. but.
1: You know, sometimes you hate a team, and then I remember when in the season when Wolves won the championship, I couldn't stand them. Their fans just really got on my nerves, and I hated how you know smarmy and up themselves they seemed. And then now they're up there, and I've got absolutely no problem with them. You know, I I don't envy their success. I think it's brilliant what they've done. So it's just it's strange how if you hate a team, one minute you can so passionately hate them and wish that they you know go all the way down to League One or League Two, and you never have to hear from them again, and then t- a couple of seconds later you're like did I ever hate wolves did I really have a problem with them I know obviously a lot of Norwich fans do hate wolves but you know don't hurt me yeah we, we right. do
0: and 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 with good reason I mean we used to have the song we only hate wolves at Lipswich mm. um so I don't think I'll ever ever have a preference for wolves for they, me they we're, personally, they were yeah. talking
2: about this on the I think it was on the when Saturday comes podcast or it was in the magazine or it might have even been on the on how much the...
1: do they pay you to plug when Saturday comes all the time
2: you don't pay me any money. I, I just enjoy <laughs> listening to it. <laughs> uh, um, the, the, uh, it might have actually been uh, in, in the Guardian's knowledge article as well, um, which is about sort of random facts about football, but the longest grudge against a player that is still a genuine grudge and they were talking about there was a grudge in the, somewhere in the lower leagues and this grudge had been going on since 2006. And they were saying, oh, wow, how long has this grudge been going on for? It's been going on for 14 years. And I'm like, you, you need to talk about Kevin Muscat, mate, because <laughs> that is a long term grudge.
1: I mean, I remember, Terry, you schooling me on the Wolves stuff when we were actually at Wolves you know, trying to tell me about why, because I accidentally was walking down the road and said, you know what, I quite like Wolves in a pack of Norwich fans. (laughs) Don't don't say that, lad. Don't say that near anyone wearing one green. (laughs) Yeah,
0: Kevin Muscat will never be forgiven for nearly ruining. And he did actually affect Craig Bellamy's career, but I mean, the awful tackle. And he he was out for ages and needed operations on his leg. What And Uh, yeah, Norwich fans are never, oh, I don't know. When did Bellamy
1: play for us? Late? I think it was nine, uh,
2: 1998, I think.
1: Oh, good, that was before I was born. I've got to... know, The other
2: thing about that is obviously that we... Cause it was horrible and it ruined, as you say, it pro- I don't think Bell- Bellamy was ever the same player again after it. It also wrecked Norwich's chances in terms of getting promotion placed that season because we had a, a fairly outside chance. Um, but it also arguably wrecked our chances of being promoted for, what, the next five seasons? Because... <laughs> It set our favorite, uh, set our best player back um, such a such a such a way that that it really actually had a drastic effect on the club for quite a long time.
0: Yeah, he'll never be forgiven. I'm sorry. I'll, t- t- I'll take that to my death. But that one, never forgive Kevin mescat and I'll and I'll never like Wolves either. Sorry, Maddie.
2: <laughs> is there any is there any earlier grudges that you can remember from sort of like the early nineties, Terry, um, against players or teams?
1: Yeah, can't Terry. It's our veteran. That's your
0: job to go back in history. But... Oh God, yeah. I'm I'm a veteran with a really bad memory though. Um, I can't. I mean, nothing on the scale of Muscat. I mean, nothing, that was that was quite venomous, and it did last quite a long time. Um, I can't have any player grudges. Um, I really don't. I really no. don't
2: like. I really don't like Coventry now after learning about no. that. After learning about the um that incident in the early eighties where. We'd finished our season and we needed Coventry to win, what was it, three games, including a game against Liverpool, who were champions, to stay up. Um, and of course, they won all three. <laughs> um, I think it was I think it was 83, but I can't quite be sure. Now, that's obviously six years, seven years before I was born, but I still took like Coventry for it.
0: You say this, and this is going back to other teams as well. Now, my dad, who, and I'd like to point out that I this has not in any way passed on to me, but my dad was a QPR fan. And he actually went to games at Loftus Road in the late 60s and 70s. And he used to hate Norwich because Norwich stopped QPR winning the league. Um, I think it was QPR's last game of the season was against Norwich. And if they won or drew or something, they won the league and uh, Norwich beat them. And he had a real grudge against Norwich for quite a few years. So it seems to just see that you know sometimes Norwich can be the, the, the grudge or a Norwich player could be the grudge. I mean, I should imagine Grant Hall. Grant Holt, when he played for us, I think there were lots of um, other teams' players who uh, didn't like him much. Yeah, so for me, I mean, I've got actually got a few teams other than Norwich that I follow. I wouldn't say support, support is a whole different thing to me. Um, I, I, just, I kind of follow the results of Lowestoft Town because obviously I used to live there for 13 years. Mm-hmm. And back when I first started to follow Norwich, um, if Norwich weren't playing or Norwich were away and I wasn't going, I would go and see the Lowestoft Town play. So, I do have a, an association to what I call the best football club that play in blue in Suffolk. <laughs> um, and uh, the other team that I have an association with, who also play in blue, so Maddie, it's not just you, um, is uh, AFC Wimbledon, which goes back to the fact that I was born in Wimbledon. And in 1988, when they were in the cup final against Liverpool, and everybody thought they were going to get thrashed. And all the people at school were saying that they were going to be supporting Liverpool when they watched the cup final. And I was like, well, I'm going to support Wimbledon. And then of course, Wimbledon won. Um, so I could actually have bragging rights around the school the next day for like the first time ever. And then obviously the story about the club being moved to Milton Keynes and the fans actually taking it upon themselves to start a new football club from scratch. And um, today it's still a fan owned club. Um, it's an amazing story and I follow them and listen to their podcasts and I follow them quite closely on Twitter. Um, and I've been, you know, I've been to King's Meadow. I actually have a Wimbledon scarf. So I think that's probably the, the other team that I am the closest association with, but the other random one that I also kind of follow from a, from a quite a distance is Barry town in Wales. <laughs> what? And that, which sounds random, but actually their story is very similar to Wimbledon. It in is, that yeah. They had an owner, who are gonna, who's ruining the club, and basically the fans took it over. It's now a fan-owned, fan-run club. And they have really amazing sort of fan culture there. And um, just like if you ever look at their programme covers that, that they design for their matches, they're just amazing. They're like works of art. So um, I also have an association with Barrytown, bizarrely, as well.
2: Barry Town have a really interesting European history as well. They played quite a lot in the uh, UEFA Cup because obviously the Welsh Cup winners can enter the UEFA Cup um, and all the Europa League as it is now. And they, they, they have um, a really interesting European history. Um, They've beaten some fairly big European sides, actually. Um, yeah, yeah, I quite like Barry Town as well.
1: It's the sort of if you're a football fan you know, not to be a bit of a fascist here, but real football fans who, you know, support fan culture, you know, a lot like us, you know, proper elite football fans, you know, everyone has to feel some sympathy for Wimbledon because you just put yourself in your in their shoes. What about if they upped Norwich and moved it to Cambridge or, you know, Suffolk or something like that and decided, there you go, that's the team. It's, it's exactly the same. There's no difference. That's your team. Go and support it. It would be horrible. So I think... I think every football fan has to have a bit of a predilection towards Wimbledon or, you know, Barrytown. But obviously your association is so much stronger. I remember standing with you in the pub on the day we got promoted against Blackburn, watching to see if Wimbledon were going to go down. I think that was the first time I met you as well, Nick. So what a what a lovely day that was for everyone. Yeah,
2: yeah. I think my, my, my thing about Wimbledon, though, is that I kind of had a bit of a, a realisation with them in that... OK, I think everybody likes Wimbledon for what happened to them. And I kind of still do. But I also realised that I think Wimbledon fans would still want them to be treated by other supporters as any other club in that, OK, if you want to hate us as though you hate other clubs like QPR or whoever, just because you have a weird hatred towards them, then go for it. Because we still consider ourselves to be Wimbledon. And we're just like any other football club. It's the same. I think it's a similar kind of thing as to why they don't like the, the fact that the media draw on them playing Milton Keynes as a derby because Wimbledon don't agree with Milton Keynes even being there in the first place. So they, they, they almost boycott, some, a lot of them actually boycott the fixture.
0: Yeah, and a lot of Wimbledon won't go to Milton Keynes. Um, so whenever they play them up there... Often it's a really small away following. And often you get lots of people who don't support either team, who go along thinking it's going to be this big kind of, you know, grudge match, when actually it's quite one-sided. Because most, like you say, most Wimbledon fans don't think Keane should even exist. They don't, you know, if you, that's why they refuse to have their name. They refuse to have the name as MK Dons, because they're not Dons. The whole Dons comes from Wimbledon. They shouldn't have that in their name. And because they have that as their club name, the football club won't have the name on the scoreboard or on the program, and they get fined for it every year from the Football League. And they're like, Yeah, we'll just take the fine because that's we're just brilliant. not going to do it. It's
1: peak pettiness, and I love it. It's, it's that sort of you know petty grudge holding, and I think it's absolutely fantastic. Every time it comes up on Twitter when they play each other, yeah, I love that they go ahead with it and do it. They know they're going to face fines and punishments, and they do it anyway. That's 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 true underdog spirit.
2: Just going back there to what you were mentioning about um, lowestoft being the best team in Suffolk who play in blue there was a, an interesting there's an interesting flag that fans of Bury town um, carry around with them Bury also play in blue um, which says uh, <laughs> which is Pride of Suffolk <laughs> <laughs> which, I, which I think is uh, which I think is quite funny um, and the non-league scene in Suffolk has actually had a significant boost in terms of crowd numbers since which is sort of demise um recently and i think there's um stone markets attendances have, have gone through the roof um in the last couple of years they actually had more than uh more i think they've got a crowd of 500 last season for an fa vast fixture um which uh, for an eight eight level a level 18 is is really high yeah it's it's interesting how um it's a, yeah it's funny how that, that that's kind of impacted the, the kind of local supporters is uh it's just <laughs>
0: Lowestoft's quite interesting though, because although Lowestoft obviously is in Suffolk, it is closer to Norwich. And, you know, growing up there, I knew more Norwich fans than I did Ipswich fans. So, when, um, and also there was also a connection with Norwich and that you'd get lots of former players or players that were released by Norwich would often end up at Lowestoft. I mean, Craig Fleming was there for a while, wasn't he? Yeah, so he was, was, yeah. It's interesting that Lowestoft does actually have more of a connection with Norwich than it does with Ipswich.
2: Yeah, I, I always think of Lerstoff being honorary, honorary Norfolk, having my family from, from Lerstoff as well.
0: <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, there's still a fierce rivalry, say, with Great Yarmouth. <sighs> Both shittles.
1: <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> You're going to
2: want to put your fishing rod away, Maddie.
1: No, but unlike other popular <laughs> podcasts, I'm not going to defend Great Yarmouth. <laughs> I've not gone oh. full influencer yet. <laughs> I'm not going to let the TV go to my head. Deary me.
0: Right, on that um uh, on that subject. Well let's move on. Something else I think we we all <laughs> wanted to talk about is that somebody uh comment that had been made in a blog that had been posted this week talking about women at football matches. And I think it got all of our eyes up um because <laughs> because it made some comment about that, that the, the, the women were at the football match, and this was talking about the 1980s. But I think, you know, some people still have this attitude today, that the, wo- the women were only at the football match in, in exchange uh, with their partners, that the partners would go shopping with them on another occasion. So kind of like the women are not there because they want to be there. They're there because their partner has dragged them. And actually, they'd rather be shopping instead. Now, this was pretty much like a red rag to a ball for us, wasn't it? A <picture>. Um, I think they would quite easily have a good rant about this. But I think, what, I think what we wanted to discuss is the fact that we all knew people, we all knew women who were going to football matches earlier than the 1980s and who were passionate football supporters. And it's kind of like it's a bit of a forgotten history when people talk about the, you know, football back in the day, that it was all, it was all you know, working class men on the terrace. And actually, it's not like that at all. Um, so, I mean, Nick, you've mentioned before about the football supporters in your family. So I think you can probably uh, shed a bit of light on that.
2: Yeah, my, my, um, my grandmother was, has been, been a Lipschitz Town supporter for, well, since 1950. 1950s. She's been going to matches. Um, so, you know, 70 years. Um, she was the chair of the Lipschitz Town Supporters Club in the 1960s um, and still goes to matches today. Um, there's never been a, you know, there was never sort of anything, anything, she never considered herself to be doing something particularly different or special when she was doing it. She's one of those things that she did. She used to go watch the football. Occasionally went with my grandfather as well. Sometimes she didn't. So it was, you know, it was something that just wasn't a big deal. Uh, Now it may well be true that there was fewer women going to the football pre 1990s. Um, but to make the assumption that they weren't there at their own volition, I think is um is a mistake. um and you know it's it's um something that um probably needs to be corrected when it comes to considering our football history, really, a, a social history of going to the football, the going to the football,
0: yeah, I think it's definitely something that should be challenged. I mean, it's interesting you say about them, there probably were less uh, women going to football. And there has been, even in the time that I've been going. I mean, there were less women, but there is a reason for that. In, um, I mean, first of all, I mean, I've always loved football. You know, I watched the World Cups as a kid. I'd have a kickabout with a football with my brother. You know, I had the sticker books. But when I went to school, women weren't allowed to, you know, the girls weren't allowed to play football. Yeah, and game- back in the 80s, you know, back in the 80s, there wasn't. F- football teams for me to join I literally and then we were constantly told oh you can't play football for insurance reasons we were told this for years you know we kept petitioning to the, was a few, group of us that wanted to play and we'd go to the teachers and we say we want to play football can we play football and we were constantly told no you can't so there's that element of it so you basically girls were put off from playing football and being involved in football at a young age and then going to football could be very unwelcoming for women now I remember this is even in the 90s if a woman of you know of any kind of sort of you know sort of youngish age was walking on the pitch. Basically a whole crowd would be shouting at them, get your tits up for the lads. You know, and this this was just standard. This was just standard crowd behaviour. So obviously if you're a woman, a woman at a game and you're hearing that kind of language, you're a bit like, Do I really want to be here? So, you know, I mean obviously it didn't put me off because you know I'm made of certain <laughs> stuff, but <laughs> you know, that doesn't mean doesn't mean I wasn't offended. It doesn't mean I wanted to tell the them all to shut up sort of being twats, but um, so, you know, there were issues and there were, you know, there was attitudes that would put women off, even when they were interested in football, even if they do want to go, but it didn't put me off, and I I said before, you know, my dad was, went to QPR matches um, back in the late 60s and early 70s, and my mum used to go along too, and she even went along when she was heavily pregnant, and she said she was so pregnant at one point, she couldn't get through the turnstiles, so they had to actually (laughs) open a side gate so she could get into the game. (laughs) Um, cause obviously, you know, tennis balls are not made for pregnant women. <laughs> so, you know, women have been going to football probably since football has existed. I mean, have you got any, uh, female football sports in your family, Maddie?
1: Uh, no. Um, my aunt used to be a season ticket holder at Highbury and I think she followed them over when they went to the Emirates. But my mum grew up about halfway between Arsenal and Spurs and couldn't give less of a shit, really. She was more into it when I was, um, really, really young. She used to play fantasy football and run a fantasy football team. So for me, I I, I didn't really speak to my aunt much when I was younger. But for for me, I didn't really have very many female football influences. It was just my dad in our family who liked football. Me and Jack, my brother, are not athletic in the slightest. So we we had that going against us. But I think for me, the turning point was April last year. And it's time to give a shout out here to our good friends at the uh, Norwich City Fan Social Club they hosted a social night and I went along with someone I'd met at a bus stop. So I, I wasn't speaking to any other football supporters. And suddenly I was stood at a bus stop one night and there was a woman and a dog <laughs> and she, <laughs> you know, being the loud mouth, gobshite she is Lorraine. She, she stopped and have a chat with me. And it was so strange because there was a woman who liked football just as much as I did. and was quite laddish about it and was not afraid to express her opinions. So Lorraine took me along to this social night and you expect to walk in there and it'd be a boys club, but there was a pretty even split. And I met a lot of women there, you know, you and Anita and, and Jenny and Sharon and all these women who were more than happy to talk about football and who knew about football, who were really knowledgeable about it. And it was just, it was so wonderful because we could have a chat without a bloke coming over and going, Oh, shows what you know. And it just, it just everybody, man or woman was so supportive in that room. And it was a really nice atmosphere and showed me that I think I was 18, 19 at the time and showed me that as a young woman, I could still go along and football was a place where I could feel welcome. So it, w- it was really nice of the fans' social club to just, they bust down so many stereotypes. And I think that, yeah, that night was a real turning point for me and how I saw women in football. You've just, um, you've just reminded me of an incident that happened. I can't remember
0: the exact date as you know, my memory is awful, but it would have been somewhere around sort of late eighties or the early two. No, it would have been 2000s. And I was going, I went to a way match with my friend Sharon and we were on the on a train and we had shirts on and we were walking past a group of Norwich fans. This is, yeah, of our own team. And they were, obviously had a few beers and they were like, oh, what do you know about football? You don't know football. do You, can, you couldn't even, you know, explain the offside rule, you know, being all laddie." And Sharon was like, fuck them and walked off. <laughs> I remember turning around in absolute but. Rab- tell them exactly what the offside rule was <laughs> quite pointedly and then turned and walked off. And I was so furious because, a, I mean, they were supporting the same team as me. You know, why, are they, why were they picking on me and saying, oh, you're a woman, what do you know about football? But the fact that they said, oh, if you can't explain the offside rule, then you can't like football, which is ridiculous. Why do you have to be able to do it? Lots of people can't do that because it's not an easy thing to explain. It's just a complicated rule. And a lot of people on the spot wouldn't be able to, th- luckily I could. I mean, I don't know where I got that, that resolve from. But I managed to say exactly what it was. Um, but that just really, not. but that happened a lot. That used to happen a lot. People say, oh, you just go because you like seeing the legs. Like, you know, <laughs> like legs are some amazing thing that you can only see at football matches. But there, were, there was a lot of that attitude that was still around. I think nowadays, I'm hoping, it does seem to have gone now, and that if you're a, a woman or a girl and you say you like football, people accept that. But there was an attitude for a long time that they just didn't believe you. But you weren't there because you wanted to be there. You were there for some other reason. Um, Yeah, sorry, that just got me angry again thinking about
1: it. (laughs) It's just classic gatekeeping, isn't it? People do it with all sorts of forms of entertainment. You know, you have fans of bands who say, Oh, you're wearing that shirt. Name me their 10 top selling singles or whatever. People, when they're so passionate about something, think to themselves that they are, you know, God's gift to that fandom and they don't like to think of anybody else charging in and being interested as well and you see that a lot with women's sports you see men who think well I like to watch men play why the hell would I like to watch women play and you get the same with books for young girls as well you know a, a female writer publishes a book for a young girl and people say well that's not going to sell to boys and I'm thinking I spent my oh. childhood growing up reading books with male protagonists you, you know you don't have a choice you want to see people like you in all forms of media but on to football I think the only really bad experience I've had being a female football fan was when I went on that trip to the Emirates and I was 17 and I was with uh, two male friends. I think maybe, I think there were three. I think I've missed out one of them. Sorry, Eddie. And we were all down (laughs) (laughs) there. And um, I was on my own because the boys had stopped into a corner shop and we'd just come out of the match. So it ended, we'd lost. And this big, Bulky Arsenal fans started getting into my face and having a go at me, and really, you know, getting up close and having a go. And it was only when the boy stepped out, and you know, they were, they were not the most threatening, intimidating lads. You know, they they they, they were about tiny. They were the same height as me, looking like kids essentially. And as soon as they came out, he stepped away and was done with it. And I'm thinking, so you're over here threatening (gasps) me. And these, you know, these tiny kids, these boys are enough to put you off. Like, what am I doing? My only crime is stood outside a corner shop wearing Norwich kit. It it just baffles me that, so that was 2017. You know, those attitudes are still prevalent. But thankfully, I I don't really get it at all at Carrow Road. There's none of that. Yeah, it's depressing, isn't it? That There's still people Mm -hmm.
0: that think like that.
2: I think there's also still still a problem with um, uh, representation in the media as well. Um, I can remember the there was a massive hoo-ha for some bizarre reason when Jackie Oakley was announced as the first commentator on Match of the Day, and I think 2010, but it might have been 2009. And I'm like, what are people complaining about here? And it, it's now become a lot more normal to see female pundits and female commentators, but that was just such a bizarre episode And for some reason, the media like to run with it and they like to try and get clip out of it and all that sort of thing. It's very frustrating when that happens. I think still a lot more could could be done, though, in um, in regards to the media and uh, and having more female voices.
1: And people say, oh, it's about, you know, getting the best person for the job. But we don't know if they're the best person for the job because they've not been given the opportunity. And the fact that obviously my childhood was quite recent so i i know about how it's being done now and there just weren't that many opportunities for girls to show their interest in football it was even when i was at high school it was the boys did football and rugby the girls did netball and hockey and dance i mean that was what 2011 to 2016 and we weren't allowed to play football we weren't allowed to do rugby and once, I think once in my entire five years in high school, our teacher said, do you want to play football? And everyone went, no. And that was it. There was no opportunity for oh. us to go and have a go. And it was the fact that the segregation of sports still happens nowadays. I don't know if they still do that. I think they've gotten better, my school in particular. So I'm not calling you out, lads. You know, I love my old school, but I, I think it's just something that happens up and down the country. And boys' football teams it's, in schools are so much more publicised and girls just don't get the opportunity to know whether they want to go into football, whether they want to be pundits or journalists. It's, it's still a boys' club. Yeah, it is. It's changing, but it's changing slowly. Yeah, hopefully. Well, when you see people like Alex Scott out there, I think she's brilliant. The way she stood up for the abuse and, you know, gone and been on the, the world stage and you still get people saying, oh, well, you know, you won these competitions, but you won them as a woman. And, it, you know, she just stands up and she doesn't take any shit. As as young girls, it must be so inspiring to see people like Alex Scott stand up there and just not give a fuck. And she's also really good. She knows
0: her stuff. And I think she does actually sometimes show up some of the male pundits that have been Mm -hmm. basically just getting away with it for a bit. Because she turns up and she's done her research and she knows exactly what she's talking about.
1: Well, it's baffling, isn't it? You know, they're allowed to be mediocre. If that was a woman being that mediocre, they would never get away with it. So the whole best person for the job bollocks is just nonsense because you've got so many mediocre male pundits and male commentators. And yeah, we're going to get accused of being feminazis in a minute here, I think. I we've got to oh, bring it on. <laughs> it's just going to be us three talking to ourselves. Oh, what's well, shall we shall we move on then, people?
0: <laughs> Just let catch a little, more, little bit more lighthearted. Yeah, last, um, light, one of the, last,
1: last light-hearted topic of the day, I think.
0: <laughs> one of the things I think that has helped me get through this no football period that's been enforced upon us is the fact that we've been able to keep in contact with some of our players via Instagram and social media. <laughs> and we have got uh, some players at our club that are pretty good at the old social media. I mean, Maddie, do you have a favourite?
1: I think my favourite is probably everyone's favourite. Tim Closer on social media has provided some serious entertainment over the last few weeks. I mean, just the Pornhub fiasco in and of itself. And the fact that the way that he responded to it and handled it was so funny. You've got all the banter between Kenny McLean, Ben Godfrey and Max Aaron. You know, God forbid one of them should post a serious photo because they get absolute pelters from their teammates in the comments. And it's, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier. You know, it humanises footballers. And you can see that they're not these godlike figures. They're just kids messing around on social media. And I, I think, you know, that just endears them to us so much when you see Max Aaron's giving Ben Godfrey grief for his dodgy lockdown haircut. Um, I think, did you see Tim Close's
0: little dance when he went got back into uh, the training <laughs> ground the other week? That was hilarious. And um, and also it gave us a little insight into the Kenny McLean-Marco uh, uh, Sieperman relationship in that whenever Kenny McLean would uh, post, I think, Marco would respond with the C word. He would <laughs> just put cunt. Sometimes he put Scottish cunt.
1: <laughs> yeah, not the C word as in Corona. You know, the one that's far more acceptable in modern society at the moment. <laughs> I just, like, obviously and, you know, he's, he's German, so it's not his first language, which I think just makes I think it he, knows. But, he, know, he
0: knows. Oh, he knows, definitely,
1: doing. but it's just it just makes it so much funnier. I love seeing those two banter each other on social media, just absolutely batter one another.
2: I don't have Instagram so I haven't really seen um, a lot of the stuff but I do see the great stuff that comes up on Twitter but something that I still need to do is try because I've never had it before is to try MD 2020 um, <laughs> made famous for by uh, Mayor McLean after the promotion parade this time last year. Cherry, um, you said you you've had it back in the day right? I,
0: I, I've got a feeling that on my 21st birthday I got drunk on 2020 and there was very violently ill on it um, so that's 25 years ago I don't, I'm not sure I've had it much since then but yeah, sort of the, the mid to early 90s was very much a 2020 and you could only get it at certain places, I remember there was some cheap booze shop on Deerham Road that we used to go to because that was where you could get 2020 from, it wasn't like in an off-licence or in a supermarket, you almost had to go to like a specialist store to get it
2: What actually is it? Is it like a, like a fortified wine orange
1: store? juice Nick It's just orange juice that's all. If Kenny McLean said it was orange juice, I believe him. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I've no idea what it is. It's some awful poison stuff that
0: gets you drunk really quickly.
2: I, I love these little things that they have in Scotland that are cultural quirks because uh, I love all of them. I think they're brilliant, like the um, uh, like Buckfast as well, um, which I've tried, which I have had before. Um, I think it's very funny that they drink Buckfast, and there's obviously tenants, um, which I. I think is gross, but you know I like. <laughs> I love the fact they've got they you know tenants is the thing there, and then there's obviously the the stuff that Tullocks manufacture, which um, are all godlike. So yeah, up the Scots with their with their food and drink. like my, my kind of food and drink definitely, very unhealthy snacks and booze. <laughs>
1: They've clearly just got iron stomachs and livers. I mean, obviously, my surname is Mackenzie, so you'd think maybe I'd have some of that Scottish grit in me, but I can't drink for anything. You know, one sip of cider, and that's me pishty for the rest of the evening. I'm, I'm a disgrace <laughs> to my Scottish heritage. Kenny McLean would be so embarrassed to know me. Yeah, but you could still have iron brew. Oh, no. Oh, gross. <laughs> Sorry to all
0: the Scots. Iron brew, which is just Sc- Scottish tizer to me. You probably, do you know what is? don't
1: to be fair. Yeah, oh, my dad made oh. a drink a few years ago, came home and said, oh, you've missed out on this. Disgusting. Oh, that takes me back to my school years. That's how long Tizer's been around.
2: <laughs> you can still get <laughs> I... <laughs> I Tizer. Uh, I saw it in the shop the other day, Tizer. I thought, yeah, but oh, like
1: UNM and stuff like that. It's got a That's spot. a throwback. Uh, another player that
0: I like on social media actually is Emmy, And I think it's because oh, um, we sweet. don't really... He's so sweet. And we didn't used to hear about him much when he first came to the club, obviously, because he didn't speak English. I think it wasn't towards it till towards the end of the season that he started doing press interviews mm-hmm. because he just wasn't confident enough doing it. But he's quite active on social media and he also has possibly the cutest kid in the world ever, little Thiago. Um, and he's always
1: posting on social media and it's always lovely seeing his little face. He's just so bloody sweet. You know, having a kick around with the next enemy Bundier. I, I'm ex- I'm fully expecting to see Tiago in a yellow and green shirt in what 20 years time. And then you've obviously got Angus Gunn, who's going to produce the third Gun Number One for us. So thanks for that, Angus. You know, you're keeping us going there. Just imagine what a oh. team it would be. You've got Ono Hernandez's little girl, Kenny McLean's little girl. If we could have a mixed gender football team made up of Norwich style kids, pff, unstoppable. They'd win the Prem without even thinking about it. There's a lot of footballing blood there.
0: I have to admit, when um, Angus came back to Norwich, it was quite emotional for me. Obviously, I saw Brian in his heyday playing at, at, between the sticks. So seeing a gun number one, back in a Norwich shirt, and, he, and the fact he did so well for us as well, I'm so proud of him. And it's, it's so funny when you see those photos of, of him when he was first, literally when yeah. he was first born and he's in a little Norwich City baby grow. Oh,
1: I He had it. no choice. He was always going to be Norwich's number one. I, I did think at the time it was a shame we didn't hang on to him for longer. But then obviously if we'd have hung on to him, we'd have never got Timmy Krull. And that would have just been a crime against humanity. Imagine in a world where Tim Krull didn't play for Norwich City.
2: <laughs> it's such a shame, actually, that his time at Southampton has gone south a little bit. Ooh. If you forgive the pun. Has um, it ever. Because the, uh, I can now see him just drifting between sort of the top tier and the second tier
1: yeah.
2: um, as a bit of a journeyman goalkeeper, which is going to be a real shame. Unless, of course, for some reason, Krull leaves Norwich and he probably will come back here. But, um, yeah, it could be a crying shame when that happens because I actually had him firmly down as being future England goalkeeper.
0: I think Angus Gunn is a very talented player. I know he's had a knockback and it does happen to people in, in their careers. I mean... People, I mean, Timmy Cruz obviously had it as well with injury, um, but you can come back. The thing about a goalkeeper, I think, is that they do have longer careers than outfield players. And, you know, there's still plenty of time for him to make his name in the sport.
1: And it's just horrible for him. Goalkeepers are punished so much more for mistakes because he'll always be the keeper that played in the 9-0 But, you know, there were 10 other players on the pitch that day. 10 other players were responsible for conceding nine goals. And yet he seems to be the one who's been punished for it. So, yeah, that's one of my hopes for the football in the future, that Angus Gunn can really go and make a go of it. And usurp Dean Bloody Henderson, who I can't stand. So if Angus Gunn could be um, England's number one at the expense of Dean Henderson, that would be all my dreams come true.
2: I wonder how many Anguses have played for England. Because I'm sure there's obviously been quite a few that played for Scotland, obviously. But I just wonder how many have played for England. Something for the something for the Guardian's knowledge article, I think. I, right. I, I doubt yeah, they've yeah, been there definitely. very many.
1: New drinking game. Take a shot every time Nick mentions the Guardian. If you if you, if you you put one Saturday comes in there as well, mate, we'll be drunk by the the pod. <laughs> well, I'll be drunk straight away, you know, as I said.
0: So we're not going to be doing the the third pod with us all drinking 2020 then?
1: <laughs> if we can get a hold of it, I would try a sip. I'm sure my dad would be happy to have some. He's a bit of a booze connoisseur. I don't.
0: I don't think it's something you drink if you're a connoisseur, darling. I think it's quite <laughs> the opposite.
1: Well, I, w- I wouldn't say connoisseur is in. You know, he brews kombucha in our, you know, in our airing cupboard. So he's not that much of a connoisseur, but he just he'll try and. I think we can get a hold of it. Yeah, I think, I think twenty twenty is
0: something that you drink if you don't actually care about what you drink. You just want to get drunk.
2: Are you <laughs> saying that's, that's you what think. Kenny McLean's intention was?
1: Are you accusing him um, of really having anything but honourable intentions? <laughs> Um, there.
0: <laughs> I think, I think Kenny McLean's uh, promotion celebrations were all about getting drunk.
1: <laughs> I wonder how much of it he actually remembers. Because I think every time <laughs> I saw him over those, because obviously we were at Villa and then came home from Villa and the promotion parade the next day. I think every time I saw him over that twenty-four hour period, period he had booze in his hand. Even when they were doing the parade just before the West Rostermoony, who was still going, and all the young I think actually haven't had time to build up their tolerance were absolutely. You know, hanging on the City Hall balcony and Kenny McLean's like, could go for days mate
0: what? I have to say Man. that by the, t- by the time they were doing that parade around the pitch he was starting to look a bit rough <laughs> so I think by that point it
1: might have been exciting to get to him a little bit. Nah, not Kenny I-, I imagine he still went for another three or four days, he can handle it
0: Well it's been great to chat to you two again and it's great to finish the second of our pod If you're listening, please get in touch, let us know what you think. If you've got any of your own memories you want to share or anything else you think we should be discussing on the next pod. And thanks for listening once again. Goodbye. Bye.